Well, hey friends, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. Today, we're gonna to be starting a whole new series on one of Paul's letters, and so stay tuned. Today we're starting, like I said, a brand new series on the book of Ephesians. And this book was one of the many letters written by Paul. You may see it in your Bible or have heard of them as epistles, uh, but they are just simply letters written to churches by Paul in the New Testament that he had planted and was responsible for pastoring. It's often said that the Paulinist epistles are the exposition of the gospel. And what I mean by that is kind of taking all that the gospel has said and displayed and showed and interpreting it and applying it to the life of a believer and to the church as well. And Ephesians is perhaps one of the clearest and best examples of that. Here are some things that scholars have said about the book of Ephesians. John Wesley Adams says, Ephesians is a majestic letter that stands as one of the mountain peaks of biblical revelation. William Barclay calls it the queen of the epistles, and a poet named Coleridge called it the divinest composition of man. Well, you can see that there's an incredible inherent sense of beauty and awe and wonder about this book. And this letter is beloved by so many because of the heights and depths of its content. And it's kind of enduring ability to encourage those who read it. This letter amongst all other epistles takes the gospels and their content that spans chapters and chapters and chapters and multiple books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and kind of condenses it down into one short unit. You know, I'm not somebody who has many hobbies. Um, I'm kind of the person who like will do something with somebody else and whatever we're doing is kind of good for me. Um, I don't know, I just don't have a lot of hobbies. Hobbies are expensive, you know? But one of the ones that have hooked me is coffee. I started drinking coffee at far too young an age. I think I was like 10 years old. I don't know how I managed to convince my parents, but I've been drinking it then and I haven't stopped since. You know, I came, I did a quick count in my mind uh, as I was writing this message about how many like coffee making things I had in my house. And I came to a quick count of nine, that I have nine different ways that I can make uh, and have coffee in my home. But one of the most consistent ways, even though I have nine of them, that I drink coffee is by pour over. And pour over is one of those uh, ways that kind of makes essentially a, a, like the same strength as a brewed cup of coffee. But it's a bit of a process. You know, it takes time. There's a sense of practice and art and science to it. Um, it takes focus to kind of extract all of the good flavors of this big cup. Um, it takes a while to sip it, to let it cool down, to enjoy it, to eventually finish it. And this is essentially what the gospels are. They're the slow sipping, unfolding, rich display of God's redemptive plan for humanity through Jesus. But every so often, my hankering for coffee is a little bit more intense. And so I'll take those same beans that I made that brewed cup with that took this long time that was a little bit of a, like a process. And instead, I'll make a concentrated, intense shot of espresso. And I'll either have it with milk or chug it quickly. And it gives this quick, intense, instant burst of the same elements, the same flavors, the same profile of the coffee that I had had as a pour over, but with instead it's concentrated, it's condensed, it's intense. 
And I think this is essentially what Paul does with Ephesians. He takes all of the beauty of the Gospels and the biblical narrative, and he kind of takes it and compresses it into an intense shot of theology for believers and for the church. And so we begin in the, as we begin in this series, I want to give a bit of a survey, not only of the book itself and the themes within it, but what is happening around the book in culture, in history, uh, that influence what Paul writes about. And so as we jump into God's word and, and Ephesians together, let's quickly pray. Well, God, we're so thankful for your immeasurable love for us that is incomprehensible and yet uh, so tangible to us that uh, you would send your son Jesus to die on that cross to display that ultimate act of love by bridging the gap that we had made through our sin. God, I pray that as we journey through Ephesians over uh, these number of weeks, God, that you would reveal uh, a sense of awe and wonder of your word again. God, we thank you so much that your word is active and living and breathing uh, and that it's for us today. God, I pray that we would have ears that can hear and hearts that are open to what you have to say um, and that my words would be quiet so that your words can speak so clearly to each one of us. God, we love you and we thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today, today as we gain our bearings kind of around the book of Ephesians, I'm going to be doing a little bit more of a teach, less of a preach, more of a teach. Um, as we kind of look at this book and the city and all that was around it. Um, because sometimes I think as we read scripture, we can kind of see it as like these flat static things that are like a picture and snapshot of time, which is true. But there's so much that's going around, uh, on around it and, and uh, around the pages of that, that brings so much depth and meaning. So we're gonna do that today. Um, Paul established the church in Ephesus around AD 52 as part of his third missionary journey. It was his final long stretch through Eurasia of spreading the gospel before he was uh, eventually uh, jailed. And so this letter was written um, to the Ephesians about 10 years after that establishment. It was in about AD 62. And this was only a couple years before his martyrdom under Nero. And Ephesians is one of four prison epistles. And they're so named because Paul wrote them while under house arrest in Rome. And so he was under house arrest. He couldn't leave. Uh, he could have some visitors, but uh, he himself couldn't get out of the house. And so he wrote these letters, uh, these pastoral letters to the churches that he had established to encourage them, to uh, correct them, to guide them uh, as he kind of made use of his time with that house arrest. And this prison letter is one that's incredibly filled with encouragement. It has these moments of overflowing what seems like spontaneous praise by Paul. And it has an incredibly high view of scripture and of Jesus and his church. And I find that to be so amazing that as we even just know like what was going on in Paul's life, uh, that while he was under house arrest, while he knew that likely his martyrdom was coming, that his attitude to the gospel, that his attitude to the truth of, of God's word, it wasn't changed. It wasn't diminished. It wasn't tarnished. He didn't kind of doubt or question. I'm sure he had those moments, but he, if in anything, if you read Ephesians and some of the other prison epistles, it seems if anything that his convictions were actually strengthened and clarified while he was in this terrible situation, while he was imprisoned, uh, even knowing that his death was likely coming. And so I think that's just a, such an incredible um, kind of, De declaration of the true power of the gospel. And I wonder if Paul is trying to kind of express this in his letter to the Ephesians. 
that the gospel message is so transformative, it's so impactful, that nothing can diminish it or tarnish it, no matter your circumstances, even in prison, no matter the heights and depths of life, that the gospel is transformative and powerful. And even amongst those circumstances, it was a firm foundation for Paul to stand on. And I wonder if he's trying to convey that to the Ephesians as well trying to convey that the goodness of the gospel shines through any darkness that the world can try and create, or even that we can try, even that we end up creating ourselves. So now when we understand the culture of the city of Ephesus, the letter written by Paul even gains uh, like more depth and more color as he speaks was to what was going on in the predominant culture. The city of Ephesus was argued to be one of the most influential cities in Asia at the time. Um, it was located in what is now kind of Western Turkey. It's on the Aegean Sea, which connected um, much of like kind of Western Asia to Europe. Um, and so it was this incredible, important part of the world. And it was kind of the epicenter to everything important to the ancient world. Religion, beliefs, commerce, trade, the Silk Road, all of these things were so important. Um, and kind of Ephesus was like the epicenter of that in Asia. And because of its geographical position, uh, there was kind of this blending of different ethnic culture, religion, and practice. And so there was an incredible amount of diversity of culture there um, and kind of this blending and melting of all of those together. And part of that was, of course, the blending and melting of religion, which was strong in kind of the Greco-Roman world, um, of which Ephesus would kind of be considered, though, in Asia. Um, but there was these additions to it. And so it housed over 50 different um, pagan gods and temples that were worshipped um, as statues by these people. But I think the most influential and widely worshipped god that was in Ephesus was found at the temple of Artemis. Uh, or if you were Roman, it was Diana. And so this goddess, Artemis, um, believed by the people was incredibly, in, incredibly influential. You know, at one point, the Temple of Artemis was so important that it ended up becoming the centralized bank in the city um, because it just had so much wealth and, and everything kind of flowed through it. And so it ended up becoming a bank for a while. It's known to be uh, one of the ancient wonders of the world, though only a few pillars are standing of it today. And even still, it while it's like popular in history, it also finds mention in the Bible as well of the soul, uh, uh, as a source of cultural importance for the Ephesians. If you look at Acts 29, 35, it says the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Everyone, all the world knows about this goddess Artemis. Well, Artemis, if you're not sure about the Greco-Roman tradition, was a fertility goddess and goddess of the hunt. And so Artemis was uh, believed in, and was believed to be female. And so because of that, there was actually a greater sense of equality between the sexes in Ephesus. In the rest of the Greco-Roman world, uh, women were in very low stature. They had very low um, rights in the world. They were kind of expected to um, come under the subjugation of their husbands and of men. And they weren't even hardly considered citizens in the time. And so there was a very low stature of women. But because of Artemis's influence uh, in their religion and culture of Ephesus, men and women actually had a little bit more equality than in other parts of the world at the time. 
And it's interesting because Paul uses uh, this cultural example to affirm actually the biblical perspective of how equity amongst the sexes is lived out in a Christian world view. Because the Ephesians had in principle the right perspective, you know, equity and equality of the sexes, but in the practice of it, uh, they ended up creating challenges. They ended up creating challenges in society and culture that Paul clarifies and resolves and brings um, transforming to with biblical truth. And I think this is why Paul makes it makes clear the need for biblical headship and equity between the sexes, but uh, not in a way that the world presented, but that comes under the uh, submission and the authority of scripture, because that is the way that we flourish as God's people. Now, the Ephesians' relation to their gods, not just Artemis, but all the other ones, uh, were such that they had no personal rela relationship with them. You know, there were these distant, capricious, uh, often angry gods. They were incredibly fickle. Um, they were at one moment angry and one moment uh, considered to be pleased. And it, there was no real sign or way to know. And so the people would worship these statues in fear. They would resort to strange religious practices, to prostitution, uh, to superstition, to uh, kind of like this witchcraft or spell casting to try and please these uncaring gods and avoid divine punishment. And so this kind of would have been their perception of religion and their relation to the divine. And this perception of religion and relationship to divinity is perhaps the most important cultural piece in Ephesus because at the intersection of humanity and the religion in Ephesus was fear. It was oppression. It was separation from the gods. It was a watering down of uh, their personhood because they were unknown and uncared about by these gods. But the beautiful thing about Ephesians is that it paints and presents a better way. And we see that in kind of the two main themes of Ephesians. Uh, it's broken up into simply two, the gospel story in the first three chapters and our story in the last and so Ephesians shows what happens when the gospel, the good news of Jesus, intersects our lives. What is found at this intersection is the immeasurable love of the invisible and yet known God, the closeness that we can find with our creator through Jesus, the emphasis on Jesus being exalted among all other things, including those pagan gods that were so revered in that culture and even the idols of our culture today, and so instead, at the intersection of, of Christian biblical worldview, of Christian truth, is not oppression, it's not fear, it's not um, the subjugation of people, but it's freedom and love and hope and the closeness of us with our creator. And so if there's anything that Ephesians does, it contrasts the world's experience of belief with the true meaning of the gospel. And if I were to choose kind of uh, two thesis verses for Ephesians, this is what they would be. The first one is Ephesians 1, 17 to 19. It says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in your knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of this calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the, state, in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. And then another one is Ephesians 4.13, which is Paul's wish that we all reach unity in, in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. 
What we essentially see here as we look at those two themes in Ephesians is that the letter is split kind of into two equal pieces chapter-wise. We have doctrine and practice. And uh, doctrine can sometimes be considered, uh, in like to use a word, as orthodoxy, the right words, the right theology. And practice is uh, considered to be orthopraxy, um, or right living, right belief. And so we see that this letter is going to split into to those two things, orthodoxy, good theology, and orthopraxy, right living or right behavior. And in the book Rediscovering Paul, there's a quote that sums this so well um, of what Paul's predominant thought is in Ephesians. It reads, some people try to separate orthodoxy from orthopraxy, as if one can exist from the other. Paul maintained believing and doing are inseparable. What we believe impacts how we live, and what we do reveals what we believe. And so what Ephesians teaches us is that we need good orthodoxy, the right words, the right theology, to have good orthopraxy, right practice or right living. And I think that oftentimes the kind of intent or, or our natural inclination is to disconnect the two, or at the very least downplay orthopraxy where we really um, strongly want to stand on our orthodoxy, which is important, but we sometimes downplay the result of that orthodoxy, which is good and right living. But Paul links to these two parts of the book with one word, simply just one, therefore. And therefore is always an, an interesting, important word in scripture because therefore is like the response to all that was just developed. So they have all this development, therefore is what our response often is. And as a result, it shows that that good orthodoxy, that one leads to the other, that they're actually interconnected, they're inseparable, rather than being these two units. Because I think there is a danger when we separate the two. You know, if we have strong orthodoxy without good orthopraxy, we weaponize the Bible, and then we use it as a tool for destruction. But if we have strong orthopraxy, right living, without good orthodoxy, theology, we begin to make truth in our own image rather than finding its source in the objective truth of God's word and having that inform our lives. And so I think we actually need both. Paul's making the claim here in Ephesians that they're inseparable. Clarence Jordan makes a quote that says, So as long as the word remains a theory to us and is not incarnated by our actions and translated by our deeds into a living experience, it is not faith. It may be, the it may be theology, but it is not faith. Faith is a combination of conviction, then action. It cannot be either by itself. Now we know that we are saved on faith alone, but that the result of that salvation is that we want to live lives that reflect that incredible gift that we have. And that's what Clarence Jordan means here. He means that if good orthodoxy doesn't lead to good orthopraxy, it's actually not good orthodoxy. Because when we have both good orthodoxy and good orthopraxy, we begin to mature in Christ by experiencing the power of the gospel in our lives, both in our minds but and our hearts, but also our hands, which is the hope uh, that Paul gives to the Ephesian church. And so we see that we are all being discipled by something. We see that in the way that Paul presents Ephesians, we see that in the way that the culture works, we see that when we look around our own culture, that we are all being discipled by something. And our belief, whether right or wrong, will determine the way that we see and respond to ourselves and others. And most importantly, how we respond to God. You know, I was talking with a psychiatrist a little while ago, and I asked them what the unchanging parts of identity are within us. And they gave me such an interesting um, thought or suggestion. Now, the psychiatrist isn't a person of faith. 
And what, yeah, what they said fits so well into my framework of belief in Jesus that I actually needed to share that with them. You know, they said that the irreducible parts of our identity are two things. What we believe about ourselves, both positive and negative, and how we live those out in the world. She said that if we believe something, but don't live that way in practice, then we've misunderstood something of our identity. That we've somehow uh, either misunderstood or um, deceived ourselves of what our identity is. But if we live our life in such a way that is contrary to our belief, then we'll have the sense of dissonance, a sense of not feeling quite right. Maybe that sense of our conscience, which I truly believe is the Holy Spirit, revealing that there's something amiss here. And so they said this to me, and it just fits so well uh, with the biblical framework and even what Ephesians is saying. And I think this is what Paul is trying to encourage in the church, to have a strong belief in who God is and who God says we are, our identity, so that the way that we live our lives is one that reflects Jesus' intent for the world, for those around us. It means that we know how to love God and love others well, the greatest commandment. And so Ephesians encourages us to reflect on what is discipling us. And that perhaps the way that we live our lives can be a pretty clear litmus test as we partner with the Holy Spirit in confirming that and to listening to what he says. And so I'd invite us, and I think Ephesians as a whole invites us to that. What is discipling you? What is discipling you? What are your actions revealing of that? Because the framework in which Paul talks about identity and discipleship is so interesting because another main theme of Ephesians is ecclesiology or the theology of the church. So because of the, the cultural clash with the gospel and all of the other religion in Ephesus, there was this rampant sense of disunity between those who followed Greco-Roman religion and those who followed the way, uh, which was what it was called then, the way of Jesus, Christianity. And so Jews and Christians were kind of sidelined and they were disenfranchised in, in Ephesian society because um, the economy, the power structures, the commerce um, of the city did actually rely on that religious adherence to Greco-Roman tradition. Again, rem remember, the, the bank was part of the Temple of Artemis for a while. Um, people would silversmith to make these um, kind of statues of the gods, and that would be an incredible source of, of commerce and income for the city. And so uh, they were separated and treated as others because they were kind of threatening some of that. And so the result was this tremendous disunity between, between Christians and non-Christians in Ephesus. And I think even it begun to, to kind of hit the church as well of, of disunity between Christians and other Christians. And so Paul's chief concern is the unity, and by unity I don't mean uniformity, of the church as a witness to the power of the gospel message. Now Paul uses many different illustrations of the church in, um, in the writing. Uh, that he has in the New Testament. He uses the body, a new temple, an organism, an organization, kind of all happening at once. Um, but what Paul uses here in Ephesians is that of a family and kind of breaks down the family structure into some parts. Uh, so he uses a family as God's people and the church also as uh, the bride of Christ who is the head. Ephesians 2.19 illustrates this when it says, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. And so Paul links discipleship with community. He, he shows that through Jesus, the barriers that were around um, God's people in the Old Testament had been taken down so that everybody can be part of this family, not just the few that uh, were God's people. And so Paul links discipleship with community in one of the most intimate ways. 
as family. The community of the church, the community that you find yourself visiting online today is to be a family, one that believes in each other, that sees and has the desire for the best for each other, that is one who is willing to uh, decrease their rights and their wants and desires so that we can elevate others, that corrects and comes alongside each other when there's failure, but who restores and maintains that sense of family amongst challenge and when there's repentance and when uh, there's that journey together. Having the Holy Spirit at the center of it all, who is the one that truly does unify us amongst all of the diversity that we find in the church. So if our identity and, our, and discipleship are formed by, in part, the family of God, then I think it means that the most complete expression of our discipleship while on earth can only happen within church community. You know, people often ask me if you can be a Christian and not participate in church. And as I see Ephesians and its incredible display of ecclesiology, the theology of the church, what I see is that you absolutely can be a follower of Jesus and, and maybe not participate in church. But I think what Ephesians teaches us is you will only be able to go so far in your journey of maturing without the church. I think without the family of faith that is the church, we will always stay as immature believers of Christ because I think we need each other to sharpen and strengthen and challenge, to have those people that have gone before us to show us how God intends us to live. And this unity, like I said, is not one of uniformity, but it's actually of diversity kept together by the Spirit, as we see in Paul's explanation of the ministries of the church being diverse, which we see in Ephesians, that we are not all called to be the same thing, but we're called to be one as God's unique creation in his family. You know, as we read the epistles, I often think, what happened to these churches? That Paul writes all these letters to the church in Rome, Ephesians, Colossae, like all these places. And so I always wonder, like, what happened to these churches? You know, while a bustling port city at one point, uh, the continued history of Ephesus is not very well known to us today. There's actually very little documentation about the city other than its port was eventually filled with silt and so it was unable to be used after a number of decades and as a result it seems that it declined as a city. But we do actually have a glimpse of what happened to the church uh, in Ephesians about 40 years after it was established. Because at the end of his life the disciple John was exiled to Patmos and Patmos was an island that was just off the coast of where Ephesus was. Um, it was said that likely John had lived in Ephesus um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, also lived there. Um, and so when Paul was, or when John was exiled, he was sent to the city, to the island of Patmos, which is just off the coast. And on this island, he pens the book of Revelation. And he actually mentions the Ephesian church specifically. And as he writes it, he hears uh, the word of Jesus. And so this is Jesus's red letter words. We're going to turn there to Revelation 2, 1 to 7. It says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen, Repent and do the works that you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do also have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. You know, what was once a bustling church in a bustling city had been warned by Jesus that they had persevered. They had worked, they had endured for the Lord, but they had lost their first love. That they had done much for Jesus without being in relationship with him. And while this doesn't present very great picture of the outcome of the Ephesian church, I think it's an actually an opportunity for us to learn and respond today. Because Jesus commands the people to return to their first love uh, of loving God with your whole self, not just with what you do, but your whole self, and to love your neighbors as yourself. And so the whole of Ephesians reminds us of the height and depths of God's love for us and for others. But I think sometimes we can be so good at being professional Christians that we can make it look like we're doing all the right things, but we've forgotten what it is to love God and love others. You know, I don't want to be a professional Christian. I don't want to be a professional Christian. I want to be somebody who captures that fervor and vision and joy and excitement for the Lord and his mission like I did when I first believed. I'm sure if you're a believer in Jesus that you remember that, where you're like on fire and had that passion. And the reality is, Jesus is saying here that passion doesn't have to die out as we stay with our first love of Jesus. And so I don't want to be a professional Christian like the Ephesians were. I want to have that incredible fervor. And it does, we have that fervor and that excitement we see in scripture by remembering what Jesus has done for us. And my prayer is that as we journey through Ephesians, that this espresso shot of concentrated gospel will bring us back to that time of our first love, when we turn to Christ, when we experience that excitement and joy and fervor so that we can continue going forward to love him and love the world around us. To close, uh, oftentimes in our Sunday morning services, uh, we close with a benediction. It's like a short kind of blessing that we give to the congregation after uh, a message. And so I actually wanna close today with a benediction, but I wanna do so right out of Ephesians itself. Um, Ephesians was a general epistle, so it was given to the Ephesian church first, but it was likely circulated around. And so it tends to be quite general and very applicable uh, to a wide range of audiences. And so without being like too far that way, I want to say to the church in Pal River, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.